Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Charlotte Ling from Lund University on this show. Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. You got your PhD from the University Hospital in Göteborg in 2002. After that, you moved on to do a postdoc at the University of Lund in Malmö, Sweden. Sweden. Um, then in 2007, you became an assistant professor at Lund University and were promoted to assistant associate professor in 2009. And since 2015, you are now professor in diabetes research at Lund University. And obviously, you are still there today. So a question I'd like to like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Yes, so I think uh, already when I started year, uh, my first year in school, I was quite interested, interested in maths. And then when we got a chance to study chemistry and biology, uh, these subjects uh, became very close to my heart and I was very interested in that. So I come from an unacademic background where I'm the first on both my mom's and dad's side to go to university. So this was not like something very easy to know what to do. So once I finished high school, I thought, you know, I'm very interested in these um, subjects like chemistry and biology. So I um, choose to do chemical engineering uh, at university. Uh, and then I started actually to work as an engineering engineer in a factory in Australia, making margarine, but realized quite quickly that this was not my cup of tea. So then I got a job as a sales rep um, selling um, research products to different researchers all around Australia, all the way from Menzies Health School in north of Darwin to the Great Barrier Reef and CSIRO, where they did research on ticks. And uh, then I met a man in Brisbane whose name is uh, Mike Waters, and he did research on growth hormone and endocrinology. And then I realized that this was really what I wanted to do. I wanted to do research in endocrinology. And I think that's where I was very hooked. And also um, in Australia, I was uh, reading the cell on the beach instead of going swimming. So I think that was also, you know, I, I sort of found my path. And then you returned back to Sweden. I guess because of your name, um, you were born there, probably. <laughs> yeah, so, so I was uh, born close to Göteborg or Gothenburg in England, English. And um, uh, when I realized that I wanted to uh, do a scientific career, I decided to move back to Sweden to try to find a place to do a PhD. And I moved to Gothenburg and I wanted to do it in endocrinology, but I didn't know so much endocrinology. So I contacted a few groups and uh, then my uh, supervisor, Håkan Billish, he was uh, kind enough to take me on as a PhD student in reproductive endocrinology. So that's where I did my PhD. Okay. Uh, yeah. 
So coming to a science and uh, which centers mainly around the effects of DNA methylation in diabetes, at least this is what I got from your websites and uh, publications. Um, and I want to start in the early days of your research career. Um, there you looked at how aging affects the DNA methylation patterns in diabetes. And aging now also becomes like a little trendy, I would think. So the, the aging research and also the, yeah, the DNA methylation in aging. Uh, so what can you tell us about the effects of aging on diabetes? Yeah, so I mean, um, originally in Swedish, it's actually called åldersdiabetes. Uh, uh, so it's aging diabetes. That's mm -hmm. the Swedish word for type 2 diabetes uh, in every person's language. Uh, so, I mean, originally elderly people got type 2 diabetes. And uh, then due to the change in um, how we live, a uh, sedentary lifestyle and eating and not exercising, Uh, younger people now also get type 2 diabetes. So I think that's where, you know, the aging uh, came in. And, and, and I also want to mention that actually when I started my postdoc uh, together with Leif Group, uh, the key was actually to study the effect of aging on uh, genes in skeletal muscle that are downregulated in type 2 diabetes. So PDC1-alpha and also genes from uh, encoding Uh, proteins from uh, the respiratory chain. So, so I think this was my goal as a postdoc to study the effect of age and genetics on expression of Oxford genes. And then um, as I did that, my first paper was actually just doing genetics and uh, age on PTC1-alpha. And it was uh, a study in uh, monosagotic and disagotic twins who were either young or elderly. Uh, and after I published that paper in uh, JCI, uh, the group of uh, Manelli Steller and Mario Fraga had uh, the PNAS paper they were working on, on the monosagotic twins who were young and elderly, and they had it under review. And then we just published this PGC1-alpha paper. And they contacted us and said, oh, you know, we need to add some tissues to our paper. <laughs> Could you be nice enough to, to hand some um, skeletal muscle biopsies? And this was one path where... I got introduced to epigenetics and age uh, being part of that paper. Uh, and at the same time, my friend, former, or she's a girlfriend who um, I know since I was nine, 10, she had done her postdoc with John Gurdon in Cambridge and studied epigenetics. And she just got back to Sweden. And then I was working on another story, which was uh, NDUFB6, which is uh, Uh, in complex one of the respiratory chain. And I had done heritability estimates and shown there is a strong heritability for the expression of this gene in muscle, shown that age downregulates this gene, found a SNP in the promoter of this gene. But very strangely, uh, when you had the rare variant of this SNP, you had increased expression when you were young, and then you got decreased expression when you were old. So I was on vacation uh, on an island outside Göteborg, speaking to my friend about our kids going swimming. Her name is Stina Simonsson. And then I came to this SNP that was so strange that when you had the rare variant of this SNP, you had increased expression when you were young, decreased expression when you were elderly. And then Stina, who then had worked with John Gordon, said, um, oh, so what's the nucleotide in front of this SNP? So if you carry over the SNP, the common variant is an A, and the rare variant is a G. And then it turned out that there was a C in front of this SNP. <laughs> so she really did a big thing for me there. And I'm like, oh, wow, you know, this is a C, G, 
dinucleotide that you introduce with this SNP. And then she had learned to analyze DNA methylation in Cambridge. So she then helped me to analyze the DNA methylation in the muscle of these twins. And we found that when you were young, there was no uh, methylation in the C. But when you were elderly, there was a quite high degree of methylation uh, in this SNP, uh, sort of, and showing that there was a correlation between this increased methylation as you aged and decreased expression. And we also had uh, reduced glucose uptake in these elderly twins associated with this SNP. So these were actually quite interesting, two paths that at the same time uh, pushed me towards aging and DNA methylation. And um, since then, I think I both had a big interest in the aging and DNA methylation, and also uh, in DNA methylation and moving into type 2 diabetes in general. Yeah, so this was kind of an, not a, like a, a SNP, is a, it's a, like a genetic mutation, a genetic mutation, but in this case, it turns into an epigenetic mutation then, if you would want to put it this way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, you also then, uh, yeah, started to work on the DNA methylation part um, more closely and did genome-wide screens to analyze the DNA methylation in pancreatic islands from type 2 diabetic, diabetic people and also non-diabetic donors. Um, so what did you find there uh, in your screens? Yeah, so, so this was also, I, I, I like these early days. So what happened actually was that I was at, dinner to, uh, at a dinner together with Leif Group, where he invited uh, Professor Stefano Del Prato from uh, Pisa in Italy. And uh, Stefano, together with uh, Piero Marchetti, they worked on pancreatic islets, both from uh, food transplantation from non-diabetic donors, but they also had access to pancreatic islets from type 2 diabetic donors. And I thought this was extremely fascinating. So, so I was quite pushy and I asked Stefano that, oh, you know, this would be great if I can analyze DNA methylation in these islets. And in particular, TGC1-alpha would be interesting since it's down-regulated in, in muscle from type 2 diabetic patients and it's regulating uh, the respiratory chain. So he was nice and he invited me to PISA and I met his lab and um, then they sent uh, the DNA uh, for... Um, from the top two diabetic and control donors to Sweden. And this was the first thing I did, was to analyze DNA methylation of PGC1-alpha, showing that there is an increased DNA methylation of PGC1-alpha and decreased expression in uh, donors or in pancreatic islet from donors with type 2 diabetes. And then we moved on and uh, we didn't have these genome-wide tools. So we then also did the, the insulin gene, showing a similar thing that had increased methylation, decreased uh, expression, in diabetic islets and also PDX1, which is a transcription factor that drives both the development of the pancreas or the beta cells, and also is a transcription factor that controls insulin expression. And we could also show that in the promoter of this gene, we had increased DNA methylation and we had decreased expression. And when we treated beta cells with glucose, we increased DNA methylation of PDX1. And then we got these wonderful tools so we could uh, first use the Illumina arrays and then later on um, listening to a talk from Eric Lander where he said, you know, you should sequence the whole uh, epigenome and use whole genome by sulfate sequencing. This was my dream very early and I'm like, oh, this I really want to do. So we started that as early as we could. Um, but first we used this um, 450K arrays uh, on uh, human pancreatic islets from uh, type 2 and control donors. 
And now we got uh, these pilots from the Scandinavian Transplantation Unit in Uppsala, which is led by Ole Korsgren. Uh, and then we found approximately 1,500 CPG sites showing differential methylation in, in uh, diabetic versus control islets. And numerous of these genes, um, they were also showing differential expression. Uh, so here we have now also silenced some of these genes and overexpressed some of these genes and showed that they influence um, insulin secretion and seem to play a role in the pathogenesis of type 2 diabetes. Yeah, I don't want to interrupt you. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, did you? So, uh, I'm trying to to think of the question now. Um, um, so you only looked at insulin secretion, or did you also look at other um, areas of of uh, the disease? Yeah. So uh, for me, I, as I said in the beginning of this talk, that I got fascinated by endocrinology. And first, I did reproductive endocrinology, and there I had a serendipity finding moving me to the adipose tissue. And then I chose to study type 2 diabetes because I like whole body physiology, and it's a complex multifactorial disease. So I want to look at it as a whole body. Uh, so overall, I'm interested in humans, and I'm interested in all the tissues involved. Uh, so we have focused both on the pancreatic islet secreting insulin, But we have also focused on the liver, skeletal muscle, and adipose tissue from patients with type 2 diabetes and controls. And there very early, I mentioned I got interested in twins. So um, one of my first clinical studies um, that I got involved in and actually collected tissues was uh, from monozygotic twins discordant for type 2 diabetes. Because if you are monozygotic twins, you obviously share your DNA sequence from the co-twin. So if one is deceased and the other one is healthy, you would think that it's the epigenetics driving or epigenetics could potentially drive the pathogenesis of, di or of diabetes in this case. So this, uh, we collected muscle and adipose tissue uh, from uh, these twins. And then uh, I also collaborated with Professor Alan Varg in Copenhagen, who also collected such a cohort. And we uh, joined forces and um, analyzed DNA methylation genome-wide in muscle and adipose tissue from uh, these twins. And this is actually very interesting because it turned out that first it was difficult to find these twins and it was heavy, but it was also the epigenetic differences were not so big as we would have liked to see, in particularly the paper we published in, in adipose tissue. So this was a little bit of a disappointment um, but then what we did was that we moved into people who were unrelated. And then we found much, much bigger differences. And this is coming back to the genetics. So we then also did the heritability estimates of, of the epigenome and, and could demonstrate that there is a strong heritable component of epigenetics. So our studies show there are epigenetic differences in adipose tissue from people with type 2 diabetes versus control, controls, but also that there is a strong heritable uh, component. And then we followed this up with, um, we've done several MQTL studies where we have done both the genome-wide SNP analysis in people and tested whether we can find an association between the SNPs and DNA methylation. And this we've done both in adipose tissue and in um, pancreatic islets. And there you can def definitely see that, you know, there's 
large number of MQTLs where the SNP is associated with DNA methylation. Can you maybe com comment on some maybe genes areas or some, some things that you found um, in difference between the different tissues and also between healthy and, and normal uh, patients? Yeah, so, so the MQTLs were only done in non-diabetic people. Um, but what was interesting, and, and I also went back and looked at another paper. So the first thing before we did the MQTLs, we actually went into human pancreatic islands of, of um, Not because of this NDUFB6 SNP I found, I was very interested in the SNPs introducing and taking away CPG sites. And actually, 25% of all SNPs in, in the human genome either introduce or take away a CPG site. So then all uh, the GWAS data came with SNPs associated with type 2 diabetes. So then I was interested to see how many of these SNPs associated with type 2 diabetes are either introducing or taking away a CPG site. And it turned out that almost 50% of SNPs associated with type 2 diabetes were so-called CPG SNPs, either introducing or taking away CPG site. So this was double as what we have in normal in, in, um, in the genome. And then we analyzed DNA methylation in these SNPs. And we could then, so for example, if you have then, you have a CG, and that, so you're homozygous for the CG, And then heterozygous for the CG. And then you may have an AG. Then you have 100% methylation in the islet if you're homozygous for the CG. You have 50% methylation if you're heterozygous. And zero if you're the AG. Yeah. So this is like amazing. And then I actually went back and looked at that paper, which we published in 2013. And what is very, very fascinating is that there is also strong, strong LD blocks. So, for example, there is the Wolframin uh, SNP that is associated with type 2 diabetes. We have 91 SNPs in LD to this type 2 diabetes SNP. And 46 of these, or maybe now I'm not 100% sure, but about 40, 50 of these are CPG SNPs affecting the DNA methylation in huge blocks. So this would obviously affect people strongly. Um, so then we did that paper, um, and then we moved on to these MQTLs. And, and in, for example, the islets, we found, again, that SNPs associated both with type 1 diabetes and with type 2 diabetes were associated with differential methylation in the islets. And there was a very, very strong enrichment on chromosome 6 on the HLA region, which harbors many SNPs associated with type 1 diabetes, but also with autoimmune disease in general where we have MQTLs. And then we did the FAT, and again, we found a similar effect. And we also, because the problem with epigenetics has been causality. So we find all these associations, <clears throat> and we've been asked, you know, okay, that's nice, you know. Um, you find these differences, but what do they do? So these MQTL studies gave us the chance to use a causal inference test where we could take the SNP and see if it mediates effects mathematically uh, through methylation. And this was nice. So we sort of partially could suggest that there is a causality uh, that methylation plays on both expression in the islets and also on uh, metabolic phenotypes in adipose tissue like HOMA and uh, uh, different lipid profiles and so on. I'm still uh, fascinated by this uh, notion that um, genetic uh, mutations, the SNPs can lead to epigenetic changes. I mean, that's that's just 
Um, amazing if you can discover that. Um, then you also looked at, uh, yeah, because a potential way to get a positive effect on diabetes is exercise, right? So um, you exercise and you might have positive effects on, on, on the outcome of, the, of diabetes. And there you looked at the differences in transcriptional profiles and also genome-wide DNA methylation patterns, patterns in um, the human adipose tissue. Um, so which effects did you find there? Yeah, so I think, like you mentioned, we took actually all the environmental components that could affect diabetes. That was my interest. So we studied like age, we studied diet, we studied exercise, uh, and so on. And, and what was interesting is that we didn't have a clue what we would find. You know, we didn't know if these things would affect which is Which is good, right? If you don't yeah, know yeah, what... Yeah, so, yeah, so uh, I mean, I think early in my PhD, I realized that this was a fantastic job because you're playing with expensive tools. And this was a little bit what we did here as well. So uh, Leif Group, um, my uh, mentor for my postdoc, he had uh, initiated an exercise intervention study with middle-aged, uh, sedentary, a little bit overweight men. And these men were exercising for six months at something in Sweden called friskes and svettis, uh, which you do like jumping up and down and doing push-ups and so on for an hour. And then muscle and adipose tissue was taken from these men before they started the intervention and six months after the intervention. When you say, then, was, when you say was taken, it means was like biopsied? So yeah, like with a bro, it's called a Bromström needle. It's like a suction needle that you take out a uh, uh, small, small biopsy from um, the thigh and uh, from, uh, yeah, for, for the muscle and, and adipose tissue. So, so small pieces. Um, and then we analyzed DNA methylation and gene expression, genome-wide, in the muscle and adipose uh, tissue from these men. And we found then that a large number of genes, um, I looked, so in adipose tissue, we found uh, close to a third of all genes had uh, changes in DNA methylation uh, after six months exercise intervention. And I mean, this was really surprising to us that you would have such big differences. And I would say that comparing them to the diet interventions that we also have done, uh, it seems that exercising makes a bigger change or make more differences on DNA methylation uh, than the diets. Did this also lead to a yeah, improvement of the in the patient, probably? Or did you? Did yeah, you look yeah. So, so I think this was very nice actually because they didn't exercise so much. They exercised like in average maybe twice a week. And they improved their VO2 max. Um, so this, especially the adipose tissue paper, we published, I think, 2013. And I published it just before I went on vacation. And um, we, I'm in a big center, so we have a journalist. And she wrote a press release that she sent in or sent out just before I went on vacation. And I didn't think more of that. She had sent out press releases before and nothing really happened. But uh, this press release on the fact that middle-aged sedentary men could exercise twice a week and change a third of the genes in their body. This was like a sledgehammer. So I don't know how much vacation I had that summer, but uh, it was like uh, New York Times, The Economist, Le Figaro, Vogue. It was like, uh, and this press release was the fifth most downloaded press release in 2013 in all areas of um, science. So I think exercise, changing your fat when you're a sedentary middle-aged man was very important. 
You had the, all the right keywords. <laughs> yeah. So later on, you also focused on blood-based biomarkers. And I think this is also a nice keyword nowadays um, in the light, light also of age-associated um, changes. So um, how did you do that? And which biomarkers did you find there? Yeah, so I think it was um, interesting. I was on a talk uh, or I gave a talk at the Garvin Institute in Australia. And uh, then John Mattick, who was leading that institute at that time, said, I, I usually got positive criticism after I gave my talks that people thought it was interesting. But he said after my talk that, ah, oh, what, ha what have you shown? I don't really think you've shown that much, you know, all these case control studies and effects of interventions and so on. You know, it's like, what are we going to use this for? And I was like, oh, okay, what are we going to use this for? So I came back to my group after that talk and said, you know, we actually need to use this for something. So then uh, the thought has gone in two directions. Um, one is the biomarker field, and the other field would be potentially a therapy. So I think. I mean, we didn't know we had epigenetic differences between diabetics and controls when we started. We didn't know that all these environmental uh, components would influence our epigenome. And now we've shown this. And then it would be nice if we actually can use this for something. I think this is what I've tried to do for, I don't know how many years now. But And, and also the question I got a lot was that when I started this work, I was totally uninterested in blood because I was interested in the target tissue and blood is not really a target tissue for type 2 diabetes. So a lot of people have blood in their freezers, but I'm like, I'm not interested in blood. I want to have the pancreatic islands. I want to have the muscle. I want to have liver and adipose tissue, you know, maybe the brain. Where the magic Or, happens. <laughs> yeah. But so then, you know, we would ask this question all the time. And, and I think the first paper we did was um, an islet paper looking at age. So there we did, um, the association between aging and DNA methylation in human pancreatic islets. And then what was interesting is that we found many genes like KLF14, FHL2, and so on, that are affected by age in pancreatic islets. But these are also affected in blood, exactly the same supergene sites. So this is really strange. And this is like, now I'm coming back to the age question. So we have done uh, 450K arrays on pancreatic islets, liver, adipose tissue, and looked at the association with age and DNA methylation. And it's so fascinating that it's exactly the same CPG sites in all these tissues that are influenced by age. So in this islet paper, uh, we then also looked at blood and we could see, okay, very nicely, the same size change in islets and change in blood uh, with increased age. So we found increased DNA methylation. And then uh, what we did was that we analyzed DNA methylation of the same CPG sites in, for example, KLF14. In a cohort, uh, these are Danish people, uh, where there was DNA methylation available at baseline. And then there was insulin secretion measured 10 years later. And then we could show that DNA methylation 10 years before you measure insulin secretion which of the sites that were influenced by age, both in pancreatic islands and in blood, were associated with future insulin secretion. So increased methylation, which we saw with aging, was also associated with increased insulin secretion 10 years later. And we could also show that the same CPG sites were associated with decreased risk 
of future type 2 diabetes. So this sort of woke up the interest in um, moving further into these biomarkers, both to see if we have association with future type 2 diabetes and insulin secretion, but also uh, since once you have diabetes, there are many things you could have biomarkers for, both for complications. So if you can analyze biomarkers when you just get type 2 diabetes and then follow these people over time, um, you can find association with future complications. But also it will get the possibility to do pharmacoepigenetics, which we have just published a paper in Science Translational Medicine. Um, so Leif Grupp, who is uh, my postdoc mentor, uh, he initiated a study called ANDIS, which is all new diabetics in Scania. And uh, this cohort uh, collects samples from newly diagnosed drug-naive patients with type 2 diabetes. And now this cohort is close to 20,000 people. And what, me what it meant was that we had the chance to measure DNA methylation in drug-naive, newly diagnosed people with type 2 diabetes. And then, as I mentioned, follow these people over time. And in this science translation of medicine paper, what we wanted to do was to see if DNA methylation could predict response to treatment. And um, majority of people uh, with type 2 diabetes, the first line treatment is metformin. However, the problem is that approximately 30% of all patients with type 2 diabetes, they do not respond to metformin. So they eat this drug for a year, and then they realize that they still have elevated blood glucose levels. And this increases the risk of complications like myocardial infarction, stroke, kidney disease, and so on. And there are no biomarkers currently that can be used, not, not clinical ones or anything that can be used to predict response to metformin in patients with type 2 diabetes. So what we did was that we used the 850K Illumina array and analyzed it in blood uh, from these drug-naive type 2 diabetes patients. And then we had groups responding to metformin and a group that did not respond. And then we found that 11, DNA, methylation, DNA methylation of 11 CPG sites could be used and were associated with uh, the glycemic response to metformin. And then we made a um, methylation risk score of these 11 sites, and we could uh, then replicate this in two different cohorts and see that this, uh, this methylation risk score could discriminate responders from non-responders um, to metformin. So you jumped over some of my questions, which is good, but because <laughs> yeah. I don't need to ask them again, but I want to come back and summarize this maybe a little bit. So you can use um, the DNA methylation status of a blood sample to predict the risk of getting diabetes or just the risk of when you get, have diabetes of other complications? And the second question that you can also predict the treatability with metformin. Is that correct? Yeah, so the association with type 2 diabetes. So we had this paper in Nature Communication, this islet paper, where we found association with, for example, KLF-14 and future uh, risk of type 2 diabetes. It's not a predictive study, it's an association. Okay. Uh, and then John Chambers at Imperial College London has also done studies where he has analyzed DNA methylation and found associations with future type 2 diabetes. 
Uh, we replicate some of these findings in the Botnia study and then show the modulation baseline is associated with future type 2 and also been doing a study together with Ken Ong in Cambridge on the similar theme. So, so I think the DNA methylation before you get the disease can predict if you get the disease, but to be predicted biomarker, you need to probably develop this a little bit further. Uh, although in the, in the paper together with the Cambridge group, uh, there is also the CPT1, uh, methylation of CPT1, that was actually used for causal inference and the SNP hitting methylation and uh, future type 2 suggesting a causality. Uh, so that's the association with future type 2 diabetes. And then coming to the complications. Uh, so there we have done a paper with retinopathy, and this is actually in type 1 diabetic patients, where we also could analyze DNA methylation in blood and associate with future retinopathy in type 1 diabetic patients. Um, and there's, to my knowledge, also some studies for, for CVD. Um, with predictive capacity or future association. But what we were interested in this uh, science translation of medicine paper was the pharmacoepigenetics, where there would be a huge clinical use if we can bring this to the clinic and, you know, in the future tell people that you should have this drug and you should not have this, you should have something else. Yeah. So I think for the sort of, what should we use this for? I think this would be a good use. Definitely, yeah. So since we are coming to the end of this interview, or we are nearing the end, um, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about chromatin structure in diabetes. Um, ATAC-seq has been a widely used technique nowadays, and you also use this to look at chromatin structure um, in diabetes. Um, what did you find there about the chromatin structure? Yeah, so we used ATAC-seq, and... Um, I think what we did, there were several studies using ATEXEC, both uh, Klaus Kestner and Anna Gloin from and Mark McCarthy, they did it in non-diabetic people. So we found similarly, it was actually very nice. I like replication. I think replication in science is key. So it was nice that we could replicate the, the peaks we found in islets in general were similar to what they found. I think we found about 70,000 peaks in, in the islets with open chromatin. Uh, then the advantage with our study was that we both had uh, donors with type 2 diabetes and controls. So then we found approximately 1,000 peaks that had a different, uh, that were enriched in, in patients with diabetes or controls. Uh, and this was nice because we, for example, found the melatonin receptor, which I have worked with already long time ago, because a SNP in the melatonin receptor is associated with type 2 diabetes. Uh, and uh, I also found, actually looking now into this paper, that the Wolfenin uh, SNP that I talked about with this big LD structure, this SNP associated with type 2 diabetes is actually in uh, uh, a peak that is uh, differentially enriched between uh, <clears throat> diabetics and controls. So, it will, I think it's nice in general, and I think yeah, the big work now is actually a little bit more to use systems biology. And actually, I, I, I like the fact that I got a chance to do this um, interview with you because it made me now go back to my own studies. <laughs> and, and I think sometimes you're just moving too quickly forward. And, and um, this Wolframin SNP is actually very, very interesting, and the gene is very interesting. And actually try 
uh, to use all these different techniques to, to, to see, you know, we, we also combined our whole genome based sequencing data from the islets with the intersect data. And, and I think the goal now is to, we have a much bigger cohort. So this ATXEC uh, cohort was not that big and the whole genome based software sequencing cohort we had, it's not that big, but now to, to move into big, much bigger numbers and, and to combine the different techniques and, and then look at using multi-omics analysis and so on will be um, yeah, this would nice. Have been, yeah, this would have been my next question. What are the steps moving forward? Do you want to do like multi-omics? Um, integrate RNA-seq, uh, DNA methylation analysis, attack-seq, chip-seq uh, into all those um, things to yeah, get the whole picture of what is going on in there? Yeah, so this is more or less my ERC project, um, <laughs> which has luckily only been going on now for two years plus, um, which was for the islets. But I, I think it's necessary to... So I think there are several things that needs to be considered. So I think one problem is that many of our studies have been done in whole tissues. As I mentioned to you before, I listened to the Wolf Rake uh, talk and uh, going into the single cell uh, work. Um, so I think this will be necessary to do the single cell work. Uh, and I think the single cell that has been done in islets so far has been very small. Cohorts. So I think this should be done in big cohorts with multiple cohorts. So that we can replicate, but this is very important coming from the genetic background, you know, where the GWAS is required replication to even be able to publish. I think this is, should be a little bit more required in the epigenetic field as well, that you have, you know, multiple cohorts in one paper. Um, and to do it for all the different epigenetic layers um, and for the transcriptome and hopefully also the proteome to, to combine and with the genetics as well. Um, so, um, yeah. So, so go, go small in terms of doing it single cell and go big in terms of doing all the layers and doing big numbers of patients. Yeah. And then I think with the single cell work is also, so this we discussed quite recently in my group, the problem with the single cell work at this moment is that if you look at pancreatic islets, you know, you do very small numbers of cells as well. So it's not really representative of the tissue. So, this is also like you need to de sequence deep and you need to sequence large number of cells for the single cell work to be representative. So, so this should also be discussed much more, you know, is this representative for the tissue if you do small cell numbers or what does it represent? Um, yeah, and then potentially use it for deconvoluting yeah. the tissue work that we have. Um, yeah. So did you get a representative... Um cell of the organ or is it just an outlier so you also need to determine this probably yeah yeah definitely yeah so but it's uh, at least very interesting we will not be bored so it's uh, it's good <laughs> we, we have a lot of work to do so to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. Now, the first one being, uh, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you reached a dead end or did not know what how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? that would have been in my PhD. And then I had the luck to have a serendipity finding that moved me in a totally different direction. And that actually ended up being my PhD project. So I started on uh, granulosa cells in the ovary and then finished in adipose tissue. Um, uh, but, yeah, yeah but, but I think, no, I, 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 I think the dead ends 
I think in epigenetics, it's, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, at this moment we are in quite, so there's statistical inflation, there is a lot of work going on at this moment. So, so I think we chronically end up in the dead end. You know, we're chronically redoing, 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 redoing. And um, uh, to, but the good thing is that we learn in these dead ends. You know, it, it's not, uh, it's a big use. It's not useless. Yeah. Mm. So in the last uh, 40 minutes, uh, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings if you uh, look at this as a whole or what we still have might missed in this interview? I think uh, one major finding was to find that there are epigenetic differences between patients with type 2 diabetes and controls. Um, and I think that some of these environmental factors that we showed, um, that exercise, for example, influences your epigenome, was important. And then I think this recent science translational medicine paper with the potential possibility to use blood-based epigenetic biomarkers for precision medicine uh, is exciting. So I look forward to continue to work on that and develop that further. So thank you, Charlotte, for your time and for being on this show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.